So as I mentioned, we sort of came out of Easter and we looked at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in that sort of day when he faced that he was at the end of his own rope. And we looked at that for our own lives, understanding that we may never face a day like Jesus faced, but we all face our Garden of Gethsemane moments when we feel like there is nothing left, the bottom has come out of our life. And that's okay. Sometimes as Christians we think we shouldn't feel that way, but it's okay to feel that way. Jesus felt that way, and we we looked at that time in the Easter week about what Jesus did in his Gethsemane moment uh, to walk rightly as the Son of God, or how we would walk rightly as Christians, reaching out to his friends, going to the Father in prayer, and all of those things. And then we moved on from that, looking deeper into this idea of where inner strength comes from for the Christian, And, and we talked about the secret of contentment that Paul had that he never really elaborated on until we went back to Ephesians and saw in Ephesians 3 where Paul kind of tips his hands to the secret of contentment and the secret of inner strength that he was talking about with the Thessalonians. And and that secret was that by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, that we would know the width and the length and the height and the depth of the love of God, if you remember that. I'm trying to sort of refresh your memory because it's been a couple of weeks <laughs> since we've been on this and uh, had some awesome uh, preaching um, in the meantime, but just trying to refresh your memories. We went back to that, that it was God, it was Paul's desire for us as Christians that we would just know that by the Holy Spirit we'd be able to grasp how much love God has through us, for us through Christ. And that that was what the source of his inner strength was. That it wouldn't matter what the circumstances were if we knew that. And then we dug a little deeper about how the Holy Spirit does give us that power and knowledge of the love of Christ. And so we looked deeper into how the Holy Spirit works. We, we talked about the media and the agency of the Spirit. In other words, how does the Holy Spirit work in our lives? And we looked at prayer. Quite obviously, the Holy Spirit works through prayer. We get to speak directly without any mediation to God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works in our prayer, but then also in the Word of God and then through people, that the Holy Spirit works in our lives directly through the people and through the Word of God that we have. And so we should be aware of how the Holy Spirit is working and cooperate with Him and and not resist the Holy Spirit. And so we've been... As I've been going along here, I just I keep thinking, I come back to this metaphor, is we're just opening up the window a little bit wider uh, every time we come back to this topic of the Holy Spirit. We've been opening up this window to cast light on the work of the Holy Spirit or, or to let him in and, and, and see his light. And in some ways, I think we're often in the dark about the Holy Spirit, about who he is and how he's working and what he's accomplishing. Right? We know that the Father has taken the initiative. The Father has come up with this plan. Uh, he and the Son have worked out the details of redemption that we in our own sin could not reach out to God. And so God had to take the initiative and then the Son acted in obedience. And so the Father had this plan to act and the Son acted in obedience. And then the Holy Spirit is this regenerating power that sustains the activity of Jesus in the world. And he's the promise of God with us. And he's the promise of knowledge and of comfort, of help. And he's the catalyst of the new birth and the power of transformation of our old self into the new creation. And victory over sin and and so we crack that window open a little bit but we need to just keep opening it wider and understand that we cannot live the christian life in complete victory without the full light and knowledge of the holy spirit in our life and and sometimes we're just a little bit in the dark about the holy spirit i find i am a little bit in the dark about the holy spirit and and there tends to be two extremes right on on the one hand 
of really understanding the truth of how the Holy Spirit works. On the one hand, you sort of got the, the I'll just blame us, you got the Baptist kind of stream of thought, which is the Holy Spirit is kind of like that weird uncle who brings kind of strange, inappropriate gifts at the wrong time and makes us say things or, or does things that just make us feel uncomfortable. And so we don't talk about the Holy Spirit very much because when that uncle shows up, you know, things just get awkward and the gifts are kind of strange and not really appropriate for the moment. And so we don't talk about them. And then on the other hand, you have sort of the, the Pentecostal, the charismatic sort of stream of the church where the Holy Spirit is just like there all the time. And, 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 and it's just the Holy Spirit is just all about emotion. And, you know, your hands are in the air and you're falling on the floor and you're dancing in the aisles. And it's just emotion, emotion, emotion. The Holy Spirit is just, you know, filling you up all the time. And if, and if you're not feeling that, then somehow you're, you know, you're, you know, you're not a real Christian or you're not living up to your full potential if you don't just have that just sort of exponential emotional outburst all the time from the Holy Spirit. And, and neither side are really an accurate picture of the Holy Spirit, right? There's, there's, when you look at what the scripture says about the Holy Spirit and what he does, and as we've talked about over the weeks, is that he works through people and he works through prayer and he works through the word and he's, he's given us power to live the Christian life. And so there's a, a particular aspect of the Holy Spirit that we want to look at today is how we walk in the Spirit. And what's expected of us to walk in the Spirit? Because we have this problem of not being able to live the Christian life the way we hope for, hope to. In fact, if we were honest, we would recognize that we can't even live our own life outside of any sort of Christian or, or godly expectations. We can't even live our own life up to our own standards. You know, we point to small examples of, you know, how things are getting better in society and there's tiny windows of time where, you know, there's actual stability and people act lawfully or, you know, we look at the success of democratic politics and we put our hope in those things and, you know, there's some small areas in the world where there's national social care and it seems like good things are happening. But to get any optimism over those, you would have to ignore huge swaths of human history and whole countries and areas around the world where there is uh, absolute chaos and genocide and abuse and greed and lawlessness and war. And even within those pockets of areas where we have some sort of optimism in, in, our, in our human condition, you'd have to ignore family breakdown and, and the unjust wealth distribution and, and any area where we could tentatively label society as good, we still need a whole lot of police officers around, don't we? And we still need court systems, and we need security cameras, right? And we need detox centers and everything to deal with the reality that as a people, we don't even live up to our own expectations of what good is. We can't even manage our own expectations or live up to our own standards, and even before it gets to court or jail or any of those things, I mean, you can bring it closer to home, right? We, you know, we as a people need the timeout chair, right? Because we don't, we start very young not acting up to our own expectations of what good is, right? And we need detention at the high school. And we need confiscated smartphones and no TV for a week, right? You know, and, and, and then maybe a little more closer to home for, for us husbands, you know, if we could live up to our own expectations, you know, we need, we need flowers and boxes of chocolate. And if we're really out of line, we need diamonds. Um, you know, to make amends, all of these things to make amends for or to bring justice to the little hurts that we do to each other and the big hurts, right? And we need counseling or we need therapy to get us through the big hurts. And we have regret and anger and fear and shame over all the things we've done or have had done to us. And all of those things that 
human condition, you could call it, that I describe is just the fact that we don't even live up to our own expectations. We don't even live up as a people to our own moral standard, let alone to a higher or a perfect moral standard. We don't even have to bring God into it. And this is what I call the Romans 7 problem. And we've seen it before today. We've talked about it here before. But I want to look at it once again in light, in the light that we are shedding on this from the perspective of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's role in our Christian life. And so I just want to set the structure of Paul's argument in Romans for you just really briefly because to, to sort of open that window and shed the light, we have to sort of open our minds and have light cast on the argument that Paul is making in this letter to the Romans. In chapter 5, Paul wrote that all Christians were set free from condemnation because of what Jesus had accomplished for us on the cross and are joining with him. In chapter 5, verse 17, he says, One man sinned and brought death to all, but righteousness and life come to those who receive the gift of one man, meaning Jesus. And that's the good news of the gospel. So Paul makes this argument that, that we are free from condemnation because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's the gospel. That is the great good news that we celebrate every single day of our life as Christians. Because of Jesus, not the law, we are justified before God and we're free from condemnation and we are recipients of his forgiveness and grace. And so we are what we talk about in theology terms, we're positionally sanctified. When God looks at us, who does he see? He sees Jesus. He doesn't see all of our sin. He doesn't see our failure. So we're positionally sanctified, or we're justified, if you want to use a legal term. We're justified. We're not, our sins are not counted against us. But we are not yet practically sanctified yet. We're not perfected. And so Paul's not done his argument. He's made his point in Chapter 5, that where there is no condemnation, that, that our sins aren't held against us, but we are not yet practically sanctified, we're not yet perfected. And so Paul takes a little detour in the flow of his argument through chapter 6 and 7. So if you're reading Romans chapter 6 and 7, Paul is making a little detour to deal with the problem of our behavior, the Romans 7, 6 and 7 problem. He says in Romans 6, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So he's asking a rhetorical question. If it's true that there's no condemnation, as I've just made an excellent argument for with the help of the Holy Spirit, he says, so what do we say then? Are we, do we just continue in our sin? He says, by no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? And so then in chapter 6 and 7, the Apostle Paul is contrasting this new covenant reality with the old covenant reality of the law. Not that the law failed in its purpose to save it, save us, as some people have read it, but that the law was unable to succeed because of our weakness. And so when you're reading Romans 6 and 7, don't think that Paul is saying that the law failed because it wasn't good. He says the law was perfect. The law was good. It was our weakness in our flesh that caused the failure. Romans 7.12, he says, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Don't think that the law of God somehow failed because it wasn't good. It was good. But he says it was us. It was the weakness in our flesh that caused the failure. Paul says it was not the law that brought death to him, but it was his sin. And so then we get the crux of the Romans 7 problem in 18 and 19. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not 
do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That's the human condition, right? That's what I started out describing. And he's talking about God's law. In his mind, he agrees with God's law, but in his flesh, he can't carry it out. And we don't even live up to our own law, let alone God's law. But that's the crux of the Romans 7 problem. That's our problem. We disappoint even ourselves. And there's a conflict that Paul describes it as. He describes it as a conflict between his flesh and his will or his mind or spirit. And so to understand anything that Paul is saying here, we have to grasp the truth of the concept of our flesh. Just keep cracking that window a little wider open and shed more light, okay? That's what's going on here. Just keep opening that window. Shed the light on this. The Romans 7 problem is that our best is not good enough. Okay, We have to understand this or we won't understand the gospel and we won't understand what God is doing through the Holy Spirit in our life. Okay, God is far more holy than we can imagine. And we are far more sinful than we want to admit. And to understand that truth, we have to acknowledge the reality of our still fleshly nature. The word there is sarks, flesh, sarks. It's the natural being, the human. But as Paul uses it, or as Jesus uses it, as Peter and others use it, specifically that which is weak or lacking in our natural state. The NIV translates that when Paul writes there, the NIV translates sarks as sinful nature, which I think is a good translation for the NIV to use. It's a very good translation of how the term is used in Paul's argument and in Jesus' teaching. It's how Jesus used the word. You'll probably remember this very famous verse in Matthew 26. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Sarks. The flesh is weak, Jesus says. And so that word sarks, that word flesh or sinful nature means that we are more broken and more sinful than we want to believe. We are weak. And that is the same way that Paul uses the word in this letter to the Roman church. And he affirms what Jesus taught, applying it to himself. Just before verses 18 and 19, he draws the same comparison between the flesh and the spirit. In Romans 7, 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And that's why I can't do what I want to do. Paul says he's got the desire to do it. He literally says, I have the willingness, but I lack the ability. His spirit is willing but his flesh is weak. And that's the problem we are all in. And he concludes the description of the conflict this way at the end of Romans 7. He says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And how many of us can can say that with Paul? But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, Who will deliver me from this body of death? And you guys should know the last verse of 7. Thanks be to God for Jesus. But that's our problem, right? And Paul now returns after this little detour in 6 and 7, saying there's no condemnation in Jesus, but look at how we behave. Look at this war that is going on in our flesh. And so he comes back now after chapter 6 and 7 into chapter 8, and he comes up with the solution for us. In Romans 8, he offers the solution to the problem he has posed. So he says, therefore, therefore, coming back to my argument, therefore, there is now no condemnation. So he's picking up where he was in chapter 5. 
He's picking up right after chapter 5. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And some texts go on to say, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, it's not weak, the flesh was weak, What it couldn't do, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit on the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so now Paul is talking about how we walk. He's not necessarily talking about it in an easy way, so we have to unpack this because Paul's Greek is tricky to translate into English. And we have to unpack this and crank that window open a little bit wider. So now what is Paul saying about walking in the Spirit then if we have this conflict in our flesh? The Romans 7 problem of our weak flesh needs an answer. And Paul's answer is, God did not only just send Jesus to live the life we couldn't live and to die a perfect sacrificial death for our sins and rise from the dead to seal God's promise, which is all, that's what he's talking about there when he says that God did what needed to be done. God took the initiative. God took action in sending his son so that we could be set free from his wrath and the condemnation of our sin. Not only did God do that, but God also has given us the Holy Spirit so that we are set free from the bondage of sin and are able to walk and able to live as new, healed, redeemed, victorious people today. That's Paul's answer. He says not only did Jesus come and do something, God also sent his Holy Spirit so that we can actually walk in the Holy Spirit and according to the Spirit. He says it back in chapter 6 this way. He says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of whom the one you obey You are either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So Paul says there's a choice that we can decide to obey, that we do not have to continue to sin, that we can walk in the way of the Spirit, that we can walk according to the Spirit. Talk about amazing grace. He says, thanks be to God. In, in Romans 8.3 and here in Romans 6.17, he says, thanks be to God for that. But then he pairs that thanks to God for what Jesus did to set us free. He takes that and he pairs it with obedience and walking accordingly. And so the implication of chapter 8 there, those first few verses of chapter 8 that we looked at, the, first, the implication of all of this, it doesn't mean that we have been made perfect. And I love how John Calvin states it so well in his sort of old English style. He says, Those who walk after the Spirit are not those who have wholly put off all the emotions of the flesh, so that their whole life is redolent with nothing but celestial perfection. But those who walk after the Spirit are they who seducously 
sorry, seduliously, get that word, just means diligently, who seduliously or diligently labor to subdue and mortify the flesh. So what Paul and what John Calvin are saying is that sanctification by the Spirit does not extinguish the desire to live rightly. In fact, it sets aflame the desire to live rightly. That we are not just apathetically unconcerned about our sin or our old nature. You know, should we go on sinning? Paul says, may it never be. And then he goes into his whole argument of the problem of the human condition. But then he gives an answer and he says, we shouldn't be unconcerned about this. In fact, that we have this freedom in Christ that we are able to walk after the Spirit. So we're not unconcerned about our sin or we're not unconcerned about our old nature, but we have this wrestling conflict like Paul has that says, I don't do what I want to do and I do the things I don't want to do and I hate that in myself and so I have to put that to death. I'm at war with myself. I want to walk in the Spirit. We're working with the Spirit to put it to death and we're striving against our old flesh to live by the Spirit, not in our own power, but walking in the Spirit. Paul talks about this in Colossians 1.29. He says, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which works mightily within me. So Paul says we have this problem of the human condition. We have this problem where we can't live up to our own standards, let alone God's. But I labor, I strive in this conflict. But not me striving, but with his power, which is working mightily within me. Who is that? That's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. Like Paul in chapter 7, we're discontent when our bodies are at war with our minds and our desire to live rightly. Listen, if you have that desire to put to death the old selfish nature and live by the power of the Spirit, that's a good sign of your regeneration. But if you don't have that desire, I'll be honest with you, that's a bad sign. If you're not wrestling with the fact that you are not living according to the Spirit and walking in accordance with the righteousness of God. And that's not a struggle for you at all. That's a bad sign. Because Paul says, when the Holy Spirit comes through Jesus Christ, you will have that struggle. That you are not yet perfected and that you wish your flesh could do better than it does. The grace of Christ belongs to those who, having been regenerated by the Spirit, then strive after purity and righteousness. Look back at what John Calvin said. He said, those that walk after the Spirit aren't those that have put off all the emotions of the flesh, and their whole life is redolent with nothing but celestial perfection. He's saying, don't don't read that into what Paul is saying. That if you're not perfect, you're somehow not walking in the Spirit. He says, but those who are walking in the Spirit are those who are diligently laboring to subdue and mortify the flesh. That's what walking in the Spirit is. Paul says it's the law of the Spirit that has set us free. It's the way of the Holy Spirit that we are to walk. It's on the Holy Spirit that we are to have our mi- that our mind must be set. Just go back and look again the way he says it in Romans 8. He talks about this. He says, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. For Paul, it's all about our mind. It's about, and, and when he was talking about his struggle, he said, In my mind I agree with the law of God, but in my flesh I don't. So this Holy Spirit, Paul says, the Holy Spirit is doing something with our minds. And that we have to set our mind on the Holy Spirit. So what does this practically look like? So we've cracked open the window a little bit. We've got to get to application. What does it look like? What, what is the Holy Spirit's role in this? Because Paul talks a lot there about the Holy Spirit and walking according to the Spirit. And, and he confesses his flesh can't do it. And I agree I need the Spirit. 
So it would be good to know how it works. How does the Holy Spirit allow us to walk? And we can only understand it if we see it in contrast to walking by the flesh. And so we have to do what Paul did in Romans 7. We have to look into our own lives. We have to take a serious look at our own flesh. And we have to be brutally honest with ourselves, just as Paul was honest with himself. And we have to understand what it means to be still in the flesh. And it's more than just what we might think of as carnal sin. It's a lot of things that come out of our natural being. It's our temperament. It's the personality we're born with. It's our genetic predispositions. It's how we were raised. It's what we experienced in our past. It's, it's how we react to the world. It's the things that we crave. It's how we cope with stress. It's all the things that we carry into our personality are part of our flesh, and they're not all good. There's lots of lists you could go to. There's like six or seven great lists, but I'll use Galatians 5 because we're going to go on to further in Galatians next week. Galatians 5 says, Now the deeds of the flesh, same word, sarks, are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, which I forewarn you, just as I forewarned others that you, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And, and there's lots of other lists, including Romans 1, which in the list in Romans 1 actually includes disobedience to parents. Pay attention, kids. Disobedience to parents is in the list, along with envy and carousing and dissensions and sorcery and idolatry and disobedience to parents. It's our flesh that rebels And so, yes, the flesh is improper sexual conduct, but it's also racism and hatred and it's violence and abuse, it's emotional abuse, it's having a bullying attitude, it's dishonesty or cheating or stealing, it's just plain greed, it's withholding from those in need, it's coveting what others have, it's jealousy, it's arrogance, it's thinking that your actions are justified and other people's actions aren't, it's unforgiveness, it's scorn, It's gossiping behind people's back and complaining. It's falling short in grace or mercy or patience or kindness. These are all failures of our flesh. And so we, like Paul, have to take a hard look at ourselves and understand what that means for us. I'm not up here to tell you what struggle you have in your flesh that you're at war with. I don't know if it's sexual immorality or idolatry or jealousy or coveting or greed or scorn or gossiping or whatever it is, but I know that we all struggle with the flesh. I do. Every day is a struggle with my flesh because of stuff that happened in my past when I was a kid, because of stuff that happened yesterday, just because of who I am, because I'm a bit of a jerk sometimes, right? Like, that's my flesh. You know, I say things that are stupid and inappropriate. Maybe I'm doing that right now. I'm not sure. But but that's our flesh. And, And the reason I'm highlighting this and I want to cast light on it is because we don't think our sin is all that bad. Or we don't think that God is all that holy. And that somehow we're just going to kind of meet in the middle. God's going to be this okay guy that, yeah, you're not that such a bad dude. You can hang out with me. That's not how it goes. Right? There's God, and then there's everything else. And we're not just going to meet him in the middle. Okay, We have to understand that our sin causes harm and it grieves the Holy Spirit. And it's not just gossip and it's not just greed and it's not just envy and it's not just jealousy. It's destroying you. 
wretched people that we are, how can we be set free from this body of death? And Paul says, by the Spirit. So very quickly, here are the things that you can take away that I think the Spirit does for us. And these are things that the Bible says the Spirit is active now that Christ has returned. He has sent the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit reveals what is true in Scripture and teaches us how it applies to our life. And we looked at that in greater depth three weeks ago when we looked at the media and agency of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but Nehemiah 9.30 talks, says, Your spirit admonished them through your prophets. In other words, the spirit spoke through the prophets in writing the scripture. In Ephesians 6.17, we looked at the sword of the spirit that is the word of God. In other words, the word of God is the spirit. It is the Holy Spirit speaking through the word of God. In John 14.17 and in 25, 26, and then in John 15, 26, and then in John 16, 13, it all says the same thing. It says it's the spirit of truth. And so the first thing the Holy Spirit does, if you want to walk according to the spirit, is the Holy Spirit reveals what is true in scripture and teaches us how it applies to our life. And in order to do that, we need to read the words of the Holy Spirit in the scripture. A very wise person reminded me just a few days ago that if you don't read Romans, you'll never know what Romans says. If you don't read 2 Corinthians, you will never know what 2 Corinthians says. Okay? You want the Holy Spirit to talk to you and guide you and teach you, you have to read his words. Give him a chance. Help him out a little bit. Open your Bible. He wants to teach you how his word applies to your life. And by that truth, the second thing that, that happens is you open up your Bible and you read the Bible and the Holy Spirit speaks to you and then by that truth, He changes our minds. In Romans 8, 6, remember Paul said, the mind set on the Spirit. Or in 1 Corinthians 2, 12, he says, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And so we need the Holy Spirit to actually Give us spiritual minds and so that our mind changes. Or Romans 12, 2, Paul says, it comes back to it again at the end of Romans. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so you open up the word of God and the Holy Spirit teaches you what is in there and how it applies. And then once you see how it applies, he actually changes your mind so that you agree with God. So that you disagree with your old self and you now agree with a new truth. And the Holy Spirit, the third thing he does is he then convicts us when we're at odds with our new mind. And so we, we open up the Bible, we read the words of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit by praying to him and saying, Holy Spirit, teach me what you're teaching me here. And then I change my mind. I say, yeah, I agree with that. I see, I agree with that truth. That is an incredible truth. And then he convicts us when we're at odds with our new mind. It says in John 6, 18 to 11, he, the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so when you're sitting there reading your Bible and the Holy Spirit is at work in you, don't be surprised when you say, wow, that's true. And then, wow, that means I've got to change. Oh, I don't like myself as much as I used to. I thought I was pretty good, but now I'm reading this and the Holy Spirit's changed my mind on that and I realize I've got to change. And that conviction is good. That can, the Holy Spirit convicts us when we're at odds with our new transformed mind. But then the last thing, well, not the last thing the Holy Spirit does. He does a hundred things. But the last thing today is the Holy Spirit gives us power to choose obedience in that thing. The Holy Spirit empowers believers to overcome the sinful habits of the flesh. 
In Romans 8, 3 to 6 is what Paul's talking about then there. And then later on in 12 to 13, he says, we have to avail ourselves of the Holy Spirit's power by walking in him. And by walking in him, we suppress the works of the flesh and, the, and produce the fruit of the Spirit. In 2 Timothy 1, 6 to 7, Paul gives this as a reminder to his protege, Timothy. He says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And so after the reading the Bible and and the seeing the truth and the convicting in our hearts... The Holy Spirit gives us power and love and self-control to actually walk by the Spirit. Ephesians 5, Paul says the same thing. He just keeps beating the same drum. He says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The Holy Spirit gives us that power. And then one more thing that the Holy Spirit does, because that's not easy. Right? It's not easy to walk by the Spirit in that way. It's not easy when we are confronted with changes that have to happen in our life and we have to start behaving differently or we have to go back and heal damage that we've done or we have to apologize or we have to forgive or we have to do these hard things that the Holy Spirit convicts us of. Sorry, there is one more thing the Holy Spirit does in my notes here. The Holy Spirit gives us comfort and joy in our obedience regardless of the outcomes. And that was looking back again at Ephesians 3, Ephesians 3, 16 to 19. That Paul prayed that by the Spirit, through His Spirit in our inner being, Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith and that we would be rooted and grounded in love and have the strength to comprehend with the saints the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so the Holy Spirit is at work in all of these different areas. Okay, the Holy Spirit is not just the weird uncle who shows up at the wrong time with really awkward gifts and gets us to do weird things. Right? He's not just that. And the Holy Spirit is not just this sort of emotional roller coaster that we're on when we're singing or when we're dancing or when we're just overwhelmed with emotion at what God has done for us. The Holy Spirit is not just that. The Holy Spirit is in all aspects of our Christian walk. He's opening the word to us. He is teaching us. He is convicting us. He's giving us the strength to change how we walk so that we can walk according to the Spirit. And when we walk according to the Spirit, He's there to comfort us and show us how deep the love of God is for us, even when the circumstances around us are not going all that great for us because of our obedience. The Holy Spirit is there to cover us. He's got our back everywhere. And if we start being honest along with Paul about the nature of our flesh, being honest that maybe we did not inherit the best habits from our parents or we don't possess the most gracious personality or or maybe even have some really nasty qualities bound up in who we are and what we've experienced. If we're honest about our flesh, then we can start to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and choose not to walk in our flesh but walk by the Holy Spirit. But until we actually feel in ourselves that our flesh needs help, we won't ask for help. And so it starts with an honest look at ourselves. That we're not walking as well as we really wish we could be walking. And that we need the help of the Holy Spirit to be able to do it. But the words of Paul are there in chapter 8. So that we don't despair. Right? In chapter 7, Paul was in despair. He was in despair about how wretched he was that he could not live up to the expectations of the law. But then he writes in chapter 8 
thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Because there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus and who walk according to the Spirit. And so chapter 8 is not there, and I'm not preaching this sermon to say, we're not measuring up, and so bad us, and it's coming for us, you know, just wait. No, that's not what Paul was writing. He was saying, thanks be to God that there's no condemnation. Praise God. But that praise to God and that reality of what Christ Jesus has done should inflame in us a desire to walk after the Spirit. That we are set free and able through all these things that the Holy Spirit is doing to choose not to walk in our flesh, but walk by the Holy Spirit. And we just have to submit and let the Holy Spirit work. Not try harder, but try differently. Surrender to the Spirit and ask the Holy Spirit to do in us what we cannot do ourselves. That's what the Holy Spirit is here for you for. Jesus left to send the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the helper, the teacher, so that he can do in us what we cannot do ourselves. And so you're sitting there today and you might be thinking, how am I ever going to change? How can I ever be that future person who's able to remain calm or forgive that person that I really can't forgive or or stop acting out of the old fears that I'm bound up in or or stop being identified by my past or or stop being hateful or angry or, 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 or to let go of those idols or break free of my chains of sinfulness? So how am I going to do that? God says the Holy Spirit is how you're going to do that. In John 14, 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to come to you by the Holy Spirit. And then in Romans 8, 15 to 16, Paul comes right back and jumps on that promise from Jesus. When he's talking about the Holy Spirit here, he says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption Right? Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And Paul says, we've received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, and the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Paul says, look, it's the Holy Spirit that's going to do this. You're not left alone. Cry out to him. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come, he would comfort, he would teach, he would remove fear, and he would show you the width and length and height and depth of God's love, and he would miraculously unshackle you from the bondage of sin and the lies of the enemy so that you can be free. And that's what Paul's talking about in chapter 8. He's saying, you have that freedom. Cry out to God and join with the Holy Spirit in what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. Imagine a church. Or imagine a town, imagine a nation where every day people were joining the Holy Spirit in transforming them into a greater likeness of Christ. Every single day we were all joining in the Holy Spirit to walk by the Spirit. You know, I would even take every month, right? If there was just one area of our lives that we surrendered to the Holy Spirit to transform, even if we just did that every month, that would be 12 areas of our life transformed every year. If we just did it once a month. And the Holy Spirit wants to do it every day, all the time, right? He wants you to mature and walk in His Spirit. Imagine what living among those types of people would be like. People submitted to transformation by the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't living in a church or in a town or in a nation that did that, wouldn't that be like heaven on earth? Wouldn't that be like God's kingdom come or God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven? Hey, wait a minute. We're supposed to pray that, aren't we? Just join the Holy Spirit. 
Let's be a people that recognize the Holy Spirit for who he is and what he has come for us to do. Let's not put him in the corner like the crazy uncle. And let's not think that the only thing that he does is whip us up into some sort of emotional frenzy. The Holy Spirit is living in us as Christians every single day so that we are able to be transformed and walk in the righteousness that God has called us to, so that we are not slaves to fear, so that we are not bound to sin, so that our minds can be transformed and we can be a people of God. There's victory, Paul says, in the Holy Spirit. That's what he's here for. So don't resist the Holy Spirit and don't grieve him, but join him in the work of leaving our flesh behind and walking in the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father God, That was a lot. (laughs) The window had to get opened really wide there, and it's still just a crack. But Lord, just, just keep awakening in our hearts the reality of your Holy Spirit in us. We will not succeed. Our flesh is weak, and we will despair if we look to our flesh for victory. Instead, Lord, turn our hearts, turn our minds, turn our spirit to your Holy Spirit so that we don't despair, but we praise God for the victory that we have that Jesus accomplished on the cross, that there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus, and that you have put in us the spark of striving against our flesh. And what a hopeful, hopeful thing that is. And not just hope in striving, but hope in victory, that it can be done, that we can be set free, we can be transformed. We no longer have to disappoint ourselves. We can mature, dare to believe that we can mature in Christ and please you and please your Holy Spirit by his strength. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.